0: Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, and I trust you do, or your devices with your Bibles on it, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 9. I want to share with you um, something that, uh, if, I, if I can use the word evolution, and I'm not talking about the way Darwin talked about, I'm not talking about, but, you know, just the, how things progress and grow. Uh, we do have some evolution in our thinking. Uh, how many of you have. Uh, you know you learned some things since you graduated from rhema and you know i i can't tell you how thankful i am uh for the two years i spent at rhema starting in 1979 through 81 um and just so thankful but you know i i when i graduated from rhema i was 20 was I 21 or 22 i guess i was 22 and um you have you have a lot of theories when you graduate from Bible school, and then we 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 have this diploma, and then this ugly nasty thing called reality beats us up. You know, we run into reality, and then we have to learn. Wait, it's not the it's not the theories we learned were wrong. It's obviously the Word of God is not wrong, um, but we realize okay, I have to learn how to take these things I learned in Bible school. And, and situate them in real life. And, you know, sometimes we had some unrealistic expectations um, when we graduated from Bible school. Some hyper-idealism and some uh, expectations that were just not, you know, very much in line with reality. And one of the verses that Brother Hagen, I, at least when I was a student, I just remember him hitting on this so hard was Matthew 9.35. And it says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every manner of sickness and disease among the people. And to me, that was ministry, teaching, preaching, and healing. And as far as I was concerned, that was all I was going to do, was teach, preach, and heal. And um, so, you know, that's kind of the pulpit ministry, of course. And and um, for the healing, you have to allow for a healing line. And so, to me, all, all legitimate ministry that God was interested in happened either behind a pulpit or in the line where you lined people up for healing. And anything that didn't happen there wasn't really ministry. And um, so... When I, I actually had kind of a, a different situation because, uh, during my first year of Rhema, my wife and I were janitors at a church in Tulsa. And then during our second year in Rhema, uh, that same church asked me to be an assistant pastor. And so while I went to second year, I was also being an assistant pastor at a church. And, um, you know, the funny thing is, is that when the pastor gave me the job description, uh, teaching, preaching, and healing were not on it. And so I just immediately assumed, well, there's something wrong with this guy. Uh, this pastor doesn't really know God and really doesn't understand, you know, what God's called me to do because I'm called to teach, preach, and heal. But he gave me this list of all this other stuff that didn't have anything to do with teaching, preaching, or healing. And it was all... To me, it was peripheral stuff that, you know, didn't really equate to hardcore ministry, the teaching, preaching and healing. You know, like he wanted me to call people who had visited the church and thank them for, you know, visiting and, you know, and actually wanted me to see if I could arrange a home visit to go. And it was all kind of, you know, trying to get them to attend the church. And he wanted me to help with um counseling, which, you know, we all knew that counseling was pretty much of the devil. And um, <laughs> um, and then he wanted me to help with hospital visitation. Cause the reason counseling is if they just listen to the word that you preach, they don't need any counseling. And then um, um, he wanted me to visit the hospital. Now, you might think that I, I found that good because you get to pray for the sick, but but you didn't get to pray for the sick in the healing line. See, if, if you can pray for the sick in the healing line, that's when God shows up. But if you have to go to the hospital to pray for somebody, well, they already don't believe God. So, you know, it's kind of like, well, I'll go visit you, but you really should have gotten it in the healing line in church. And so I had this, I had this paradigm in my mind that all true ministry all legitimate ministry happened either in the pulpit or the healing line and anything else was just honestly way inferior if it even was ministry but um because i was just so sold on teaching preaching and healing and so but i spend that year you know doing all these things and honestly uh, oh and and um You know, one of the things I I was kind of over our food pantry, so we got to help people with food and things like that. But really, if they believed God, they didn't need that. So and and so what they needed to do is just get under the teaching and the pre and then they didn't need us to give them food. So do you, you understand what I'm saying? And I hope you understand kind of the sarcasm and and, you know, the tongue in cheek nature of what I'm communicating. And I was I was on staff at that church for a total of three and a half years. And um, and at that time, um, I had the opportunity to go and begin teaching at Rhema at the very dangerous age of twenty four. I mean, if you doubt that the Higgins are people of faith, uh, they had faith. You know, I appreciate that. I'm forever grateful they gave me that opportunity. But honestly, by the time I was leaving that other church, I was going to preach my farewell sermon. And so I get up, I think it was a Sunday night, and I preach my farewell sermon. And um, this is going to reveal my immaturity. This is going to kind of reveal some youthful pride. But in my mind, I was kind of imagining, you know, okay, I'm going to preach my farewell sermon, and people are probably going to come and say thank you for being with. And here's what I envisioned. I envisioned everybody lining up, And saying, oh, Brother Cook, thank you for being our assistant pastor for these last three and a half years. And and what I envisioned all of them saying was, the series that you taught... On the blood covenant, the teaching that you did on righteousness, what you taught us on the believer's authority, what you taught us about faith. You know, your, your messages changed our life. You know, the words you gave, da-da-da. You know, I, I just envisioned all these, you know, wonderful things that people were going to say to me. It was my ego on, you know, unleashed. But anyway, uh, so I preach my farewell sermon. And something very interesting happened. The people were very gracious and they came on and said thank you and all this stuff. Not one person thanked me for anything that had to do with anything I'd done from the pulpit. Now, at first I didn't do a lot of tea but by the time I was finishing three and a half years, the pastor was letting me preach quite a bit. And not one person came up and thanked me for any sermon that I preached. I'm not, please, I'm not minimizing the importance of the preached or taught word. I'm, I'm not. But, but at, at one time in my life, I thought that was the only thing that mattered about ministry. And so what people came up and thanked me for, it, number one, I was really disappointed at first that nobody thanked me for any of my teaching. But, but what people did come up and thank me for, they said, Brother Cook, thank you for that time that, you know, our daughter got rushed into the emergency room and, and you know, for emergency surgery. And you, just, you came to the hospital and you sat with us and you just kept us company. You, it's such an assurance and comfort that you just were with us. And somebody else said, you know, Brother Cook, thank you for that time when, you know, my mother died and you met us at the at the hospital and came to the funeral home and you helped us. You know, we were confused and distraught and you helped us plan things and then you helped. You walked us through the funeral and you checked on us afterwards. You just you know, it was a comfort. And somebody else said, you know, Brother Cook, thank you for that time when I, I got laid off from my job. And, man, I didn't know how we were going to make it. And, and uh, you called me into the office when you heard that I'd lost my job. And, man, you helped me carry some boxes of groceries out. And um, that relieved some pressure from us. And you gave me the names of some businessmen in the church that uh, I could contact. And I was able to get a job. You know, everything that people thanked me for had nothing to do with anything I had preached from the pulpit, but it had to do with personal, what I'll call the personal touch, or what we might call pastoral care. And all of a sudden, I realized, without realizing it, what Brother Hagen taught us was right, and I wasn't wrong to think that Teaching, preaching, and healing are an important part of ministry. But what I had was I had this narrow perspective that limited how God can work in different ways and meet and minister to the needs of people. In other words, I guess what I'm saying is I had a very one dimensional perspective of ministry. In my young, immature mind, If it wasn't behind a pulpit or in a healing line, uh, it wasn't really legitimate ministry. And it's not, please understand, it's not that today I devalue teaching, preaching, and healing. It's not that I've diminished my appreciation for that. It's that my appreciation for other expressions and other forms of ministry have increased. To where now I believe that lots of different kinds of ministries and expressions of God's love through personal relationships, through caring, through mercy, through benevolence, through helps, they're all important to God. And they're all vital for meeting the, the multiplied needs of different people's lives. Now, when I had this epiphany that there's more to ministry than just what happens in the pulpit and the healing line, I went back and um, I, I looked at what else. I started to say, what else Brother Hagin said? He was just quoting Jesus. But in Matthew 9, Jesus, he had gone about all the villages and cities. What, what was Jesus doing? He was teaching Preaching and healing. So we know that's valid. But in verse 36 it says, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Now, stop and think about this. Jesus had been going to all the villages, cities, teaching, preaching, and healing. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. Listen to how the Amplified says this. When he saw the throngs, he was moved with pity and sympathy for them because they were, listen to this, bewildered, harassed, distressed, dejected, and helpless like sheep having no shepherd. What all of a sudden hit me is this is after Jesus had taught, preached, and healed. After Jesus taught, preached, and healed in all the cities and villages, there were still multitudes of people that were messed up, that were hurting that were disoriented, that needed help. Stop and think about it. If after Jesus taught, people were bewildered, harassed, distressed, dejected, and helpless, think what they were like before he taught and preached and healed. Jesus had to teach, preach, and heal just to get people up to the level of being bewildered and harassed and dejected and helpless. See, I had this naive idea at the age of 21 or 22 that, man, if people would just sit under one of my sermons, man, all their problems would be, you know, they're just going to get everything, you know, from my one sermon in the pulpit. Man, everybody who had any problems, anybody who had any issues, man, if, if they just if they just hear me preach once, it's going to solve all their problems. Now, how many of you pastors have found that when when people just hear you one time, all their issues are supernaturally resolved? (laughs) You know, um, but what we realize is that, you know, we're going to help some people when we minister. Some people are going to get some things when we preach and pray for people and all that. But you know what? There are going to be a whole bunch more people next Sunday that have other issues and other problems. You know, we, we have job security as pastors. Because, you know, even after Jesus taught, preached, and healed, people were still weary and scattered and so on. And notice what it says. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Notice, Jesus didn't see them as sheep without a teacher. How many? Of you, do you know people can teach without having a shepherd's heart? See, some churches, and, and I say this, you know, very respectfully, but churches can be a teaching center without having a pastoral heart in the middle of that church. Teaching, preach people, a church can be a revival center without there being a shepherd's heart. A church can be a healing center without there being a shepherd's heart. See, can I be honest? Your people can sit at home and watch the best Bible teachers in the world on television. That doesn't mean they're being pastored. They can hear the most powerful preachers in the world. That doesn't mean they're being pastored. They can sit at home and watch healing revivalists minister say, put your hand on the television screen as I pray for you. And, you know, let me send you my miracle prayer cloth in the mail. You know, they can they can partake of healing type ministry without being shepherd. When Jesus he went about teaching, preaching and healing, but when he saw people still hurting, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And all of a sudden I realized that what people were thanking me for when I was resigning from that church and getting ready to go teach at Ramah was people weren't thanking me for what I taught. Or what I preached. Nobody even thanked me for... Oh, Brother Cook, that one time in the healing line. Nobody said anything like that. But they said... They were thanking me for the personal touch. When I sat with them at the hospital. When I talked to them in the office. And things of that nature. Now, it's interesting that Jesus didn't stop here. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. But then... He said to his disciples in verse 37, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers out into his harvest. Now, I'm just throwing this out for you to think about. I'm not trying to make this into some kind of rigid formula. But it appears that Jesus is presenting three different levels of ministry. The foundational level that, I mean, this is part of our DNA as Rhema people, is teaching, preaching, and healing. We value that. Um, but Jesus introduced another level of ministry on top of teaching, preaching, and healing, which is pastoral See, you can have teaching, preaching, and healing without having personal connection with people. You know, you can deliver sermons. You can pray for people and in the healing line and then walk out and never be a part of their life. But see, especially those of you that are pastors, you live with your people week in and week out. You're not just giving them Bible lessons. You're, you're walking with them through all the different issues of life. You're with them through the tough times, the hard times. You're doing more than teaching, preaching, and healing. You're a shepherd. And it seems that Jesus did, first of all, he communicated, he did the teaching, preaching, and healing, but then he said, that's not enough. The sheep need a shepherd. But if a shepherd tries to do everything by himself without a whole bunch of laborers, that shepherd's not going to last very long. So Jesus introduced a third level. Number one, the foundational level of ministry is what we might call the ministry of the word and the spirit. Teaching, preaching and healing. But Jesus indicated that's not enough. And he said the sheep need a shepherd. So the pastoral level of ministry comes in. And apparently it's not enough just to have a pastor or two. Because Jesus then said, we need to pray that there's a multiplication. He didn't just say a multiplication of pastors. Because then you'd get the idea that, well, pastors do everything. He said a multiplication of laborers. Even when you've got a pastor, I quoted this last night, talking at the Helps Banquet here last night. One person said this, and I think this is really true, that for every one pastor... There needs to be a hundred helpers. And that's probably a pretty, I'm not trying to make that some rigid mathematical thing, but it's probably pretty accurate. Because if a pastor doesn't have good helpers, laborers working alongside of him. So I think what Jesus was doing here was he was presenting kind of a complete uh, package of what ministry is all about. And I had to learn as a very young person graduating, I I had something that was true, but I had to go beyond just the concept of teaching, preaching, and healing and realize we're going to have to have a lot of personal interaction with people. We're going to have to, you know, did you notice that Jesus spent time with individuals? Just discipling them, talking to them about needs in their life. You know, the rich young ruler, Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the woman taken in adultery. You know, Jesus wasn't just always, you know, doing the big mass preaching type things. He was pastorally encouraging and personally applying the word to help people in their life and so on. So. What I want to talk about, I want want you to go in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3 real quickly and just talk about um, what I call multi-dimensional ministry, multi-dimensional ministry. One thing that I had to really grow through and grow in in my life was to understand that Well, let let me give you this example. Somebody once said, if the only tool that you have in your toolkit is a hammer, it's amazing how much everything looks like a nail. (laughs) If the only tool that you have in your toolkit is a hammer, it's amazing how much everything looks like a nail. Um, Just give you an example. You don't need to turn there. Everybody knows Romans 12. I think it's verse 15. What did Paul say? He said, rejoice with those that rejoice, weep with those that weep. That right there is an example of multidimensional ministry. You don't minister the same way all the time and you don't uh, you don't treat everybody the same way. You rejoice with those that rejoice. You you weep with those that weep. There's another verse in um, oh, where is it? First Thessalonians five somewhere. You'll know it. Paul says, uh, comfort the feeble-minded, warn those who are unruly, um, support the weak. I can't remember all the terms he uses, but he gives he gives different techniques or tools of ministry for different types of situations we don't treat everybody the same and not everybody i I like you know brother hagan referred to howard carter the guy who you know really one of the early pentecostals that introduced um the teaching of first corinthians 12 the different types of spiritual gifts somebody came up to howard carter and said brother carter would you pray for me for healing after a meeting and brother carter said well you know i'd be happy to pray for you for healing but to be honest my anointing is is more toward getting people filled with the spirit he said now my wife has a stronger healing anointing than i do she's just right over there go have my wife pray for you isn't it kind of neat to know that we don't all have to have you know, I mean, I understand we can operate by faith in any area, but isn't it nice when we recognize that God has different people that are better at different things and we can celebrate and let different people function in their capacity and, and yet somehow the Holy Spirit will tie it all in together. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. This to me is the ultimate example of... Um, multidimensional ministry. Ephesians 3.17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints. So this is something that God wants all saints to comprehend. What is the width, how wide, and the length, and the depth, and the height... And to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul deliberately and intentionally refers to the love of God as having different dimensions. How wide is the love of God? How long is the love of God? How deep is the love of God? And how high is the love of God? And he indicates that it's when we comprehend all of these dimensions that we will be filled with all the fullness of God. And so here's my question today. How much of an expression of God's love are we showing through our ministry? Because it's possible to only... I believe it's possible to only show one dimension of God's love and not show how multidimensional His love is. I want to take these four dimensions and talk about them just for a minute. How long... I'm, I'm going to skip how wide the love of God is. I'm going to leave it for last. Okay? I want to talk about if a person comprehends the length of god's love what kind of christian is that going to be if a christian comprehends or if a church comprehends the length of god's love what kind of church is that going to be what kind of programs ministries are they going to have what what are their sermons going to sound like when i hear of the length of god's love when I think of length, I think of something far away. Things at a distance. Isn't that what long is? If something is a long way away? Well, the Bible talks about the, the arm of the Lord is not short. It, it, when, when I, if, for example, if I think of somebody being a long way away from God, what does that mean? If they're a long way away from God, they need to be saved, right? Somebody who is separated or cut off from God, they're a long way from him. And we can think of this spiritually or we can think of this geographically. Um, A missionary typically thinks about people who are a long way away from God geographically. A missionary is traveling great distances. What did Jesus say? Uh, preach the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the, the uttermost parts of the earth. A person who is mindful of the length of God's love is mindful of people who are far away from God spiritually and perhaps far away geographically. A Christian who is oriented toward the length of God's love is thinking about bringing people closer to God who are far away from Him. In other words, a length-oriented Christian is a person who thinks evangelistically, they think in terms of outreach, and they think in terms of missions. Are you ever around a Christian and all they talk about is, and we need to get people saved, we need to send people to the prisons, we need to send people out to the streets, we need to, we need to, we need to send missionaries. They are mindful of the length of God's love. I know that's not the only dimension that Paul mentions, but you know there are people who predominantly think about the length of God's love. They're missionaries, they're evangelists, they're soul winners. They're always thinking about getting people who are far away from God and bringing him close. Some churches, if the pastor is wired that way, a lot of times you'll see it in their church name. We're such and such outreach center. We're such and such missionary church. We're such and such uh, evangelistic, you know, whatever um but they, they're mindful of the lost. Now, the next the one that he mentions is the depth of God's love. He starts how wide, which we're skipping, how long, how deep. When I think of depth, the depth of God's love, you know, you ever hear people say, wow, that message was deep. That wasn't milk. That wasn't milk for the babes. That was meat. For the deep. What do you think of when you think of deep? The depth of God's love. You think of maturity. You think of, you know, the more profound, not not the elementary, not the superficial, not the entry level milk of the word. But you think of things for the mature. You think of, you know, deep in discipleship. So when we think of the depth of God's love, see, the person who's focused on depth, they're the ones that are going to say, well, Jesus didn't say make converts. He said make disciples. You ever hear that statement? And it's true. He did say make disciples. But, but they'll, they're kind of, you know, poo-pooing, you know, looking down on just evangelism. We want to take people deep. Now, did you notice, at least when I attended Rhema, 79 through 81, the emphasis was on deep. Rhema was a deep. That's where you went deep in the word. And we were proud of being deep. And, um, and there's nothing wrong with being deep. God wants us to move into maturity. But every once in a while, somebody would come along. We'd have T.L. Osborne come out, or we'd have some missionary come out. And, man, he'd stir us to go long. Okay? And, but we were, we were more comfortable being deep than we were long. Going long kind of eh, got us out of our comfort zone. But, boy, as long as Brother Hagin was taking us deep. And, see, people can go deep one of two ways. They can go deep in the Word, or they can go deep in the Spirit. Okay? And that was honestly, that was kind of Rama's strength, because I think that was Brother Hagen's strength. Now Brother Hagan could give some awesome altar calls. He got a lot of people saved. but Brother Hagen wasn't a missionary. Brother Hagen wasn't an evangelist per se. He was a What, what, what offices did Brother Hagen stand in? Teacher and prophet, or probably prophet and teacher. So where did Brother Hagen primarily take us through his ministry deep? Where did T.L. Osborne try to take us through his ministry? Long. And see, Paul didn't pray that we would know what is the width or the length or the depth or the height. What did Paul pray? That we would know what is the width and the length and the depth and the height. Somehow, as valuable and precious as each of these are on their own... Somehow we still have to weave these together if we're going to be a full, giving full expression of the will of God. So with, with length, we, we go far away, we go outside the walls of the church and we reach the lost with depth. We take those who have come in and we bring them into maturity and take them deeper in knowledge, the meat of the word, deeper in discipleship. But then there's the height. You know what? Just about the time that we all got really comfortable with the depth and the maturity and the discipleship. God raises up this group out of Australia named Hillsongs and they're taking everybody high. The height is the worship and the praise. Taking people, you know, the high praises of God being in our mouth. We're going to take people up to the holy of holies. And to me, the height and and maybe my interpretation of this isn't right. I don't know. But it seems to me that um, that was kind of a shock to a lot of us word people when the emphasis for so much of the body of Christ kind of shifted. It's not that we don't need to be deep anymore. We always need to have to. But all of a sudden, so many people were more excited about praise and worship than they were about the word. a shock to my system. Because I was used, I taught 18 years. Our, you know what the, um, the opening worship and praise was for me for 18 years? It was the bell. The bell rang and boom, we're going deep. You know what I'm talking about? And and so and today we're watching all this emphasis on worship and praise. You know, you've got songs coming out of Bethel and all these other places. And and there's an emphasis. But see, here's the thing. If you're my orientation, I'm a Bible teacher. My orientation is deep. But I don't have to be threatened by long. I don't have to be threatened by high. Because God wants people to go deep, but he also wants people to go high in worship. He also wants people to go long in evangelism. Let's go back to the one I skipped. And I skipped it on purpose. How wide is the love of God? A few years ago, I was a little bit heavier than I am now, and um, I was in Singapore. I was actually about, let me think, 40 40 pounds heavier than I am now. And um, I was in Singapore, and you know, the Singaporeans are of Chinese descent, and the Chinese tend to be a little bit smaller framed than some of us supersized Americans. And um, we went out for praise and worship. My wife and I went out for praise and worship. And we never sat down because uh, we went out after it had already started. And so we're worshiping God. And then they say, OK, sit down, announcements offering. When I sat down, their little chairs, they had these little old theater chairs with the armrests. And these were not the big, cushy American What we have now in theaters, you know, the big lazy boy type recliners. These were these little dinky things not made for people of my girth. And but when I sat down, I didn't realize, but I wedged in that seat and these armrests on either my body weight, you know, carried me down. But once I got down deep in that seat, yeah, I was in a vice grip. I mean, they, I w- I, I, it was, you know, circulation was going to be cut off. Um, and I leaned over to my wife and I said, honey, I said, uh, they're going to be introducing me to preach here in a, in a minute. I said, I can't move. I said, I am. I mean, I was trying to wiggle. I mean, it was it was. I needed the jaws of life to come in there and extricate me from that deal. And um, I said to my wife, I said, honey, when they introduce me, I said, I'm going to I'm going to kind of lean back. I said, put your hand on my back. And I said, I'm going to thrust my torso forward. And I said, I just pray to God that um, I can get out of this seat because it's I could feel the pressure on either side of my hips. And um, so she put her hand on my back. They introduced me. She pushed. I and thank God my wife isn't normally used in deliverance ministry, but she cast me out that day. And God. But see, here, here's the point. The chair was not wide. The chair was not wide. The chair was narrow. And because the chair was so narrow, I felt very. I, I, did, I wasn't comfortable in that chair. It's like, this is not for me. I, I don't belong here. Um, it, w- it was not a comfortable situation for me at all. And I began to think about, okay, how many times did David say, God has delivered me into a wide place or a broad place? And when I think of the width of the, how wide is the love of God... You know what I really think of? I think of of being welcomed, hospitality, um, a person, you know, just I think of Jesus saying, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, Jesus doesn't put people in a straitjacket. Pe- Jesus liberates people to be who they are. We were talking at um, the table here while we were enjoying some, breakfast and um bill shared tell me some of the things you guys are offering you said grief recovery care cancer care care, divorce care care, drug addiction addiction. you know they have all these things in their church i'm not saying every church has to do everything every other church is doing but see let me give you an example okay i'm a bible teacher I like I like deep things, um, and there's a place for deep things. But let's say somebody comes. Let's say I'm a pastor, and somebody comes into my church. They're a visitor. They're just checking it out. They don't know anything about our church. And and let's say that person has been through a divorce. Um, they're reeling from that. They're in financial. You know, their finances are down the toilet. Um, They're uh, you know, they're just having maybe they're struggling with a drug issue. Maybe they've turned to alcohol to cope with the pressure and they come to my church and I'm doing part 14 of a 23 part series contrasting the intricate nuances differentiating the Levitical priesthood from the Melchizedekian priesthood. Now, whoever I have coming to my church, I'm taking them deep. But I'm afraid that first-time visitor who doesn't know anything about the book of Hebrews or the Levitical verse of the Melchizedekian priesthood, and they're catching me on lesson 14 in the series, probably is going to feel about like I did sitting in that chair in Singapore. This is not for me. I, 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 I'm i but, you know, I was in the church here recently and, um, and, and and it's not they weren't compromising anything. They, you know, good presence of God and good word and all that. But just during the announcements, they had a deal up on kind of like some of the things you're offering. I know they had four different things and they had all the things you had. Plus, they were offering Financial Peace University you know, the Dave Ramsey money thing. So they just got up and said, hey, if if you're here today and you're going through certain challenges in your life, here are some of the things that we have available here. Divorce care, grief recovery. Uh, They had, I think they were using Celebrate Recovery, you know, for helping people get out of drug and alcohol and other kinds of issues. And then they had, and if your finances, if you're really struggling. See, if I was a first time visitor there, and I didn't know anything about this church. At least, you know, I may not know why these people worship. I may not be able to tap into the high thing. You know, they, they might be sharing some Bible things. I don't really know what they're talking about because I've never studied the Bible before. But see, the width, the width is they're connecting with people where people hurt. They're making people feel welcome. The very fact that you have greeters and the very fact that you have ushers is communicating with welcome. Anything that makes people feel hospitable, welcome and hospitable, any communication of hospitality, I think contributes to the width of the church. So I guess what I'm saying is this. We should not, unfortunately we do, but we should not see these four factors as being competitive. We shouldn't be saying, well, are we going to be a church that takes people deep or long or high or wide? I, I think what Paul was communicating is he wants all saints to comprehend all these dimensions and Different churches are going to be better at different ones than another. If, if you have a deep church, look at their title. Such and such Bible church. Such and such word center. You know, anything that deals with Bible or word, their their greatest strength is probably going to be deep. If, if you're looking for a church that's broad, look for such and such Community church. If you're looking for a church that focuses on the height, then look for such and such worship center or praise, you know, church or something like that. And and please understand, if you have a church or if you have a church title that kind of primarily focuses on one, that's fine. But in, in our content What I would hope people would do from hearing something like this is just do an assessment. Be honest about what your favorite is. You know, honestly, my favorite is deep. That's my favorite. But if I'm going to pastor a church, am I doing things also to help make the church broad? Am I doing things to help help the church focus on length? Um, My wife is a height person. She she loves to worship. She'll sit at the piano and just sing and worship Jesus. If I say, "Honey, guess what? You know, you know, I, I just did a master's degree in church history because I love history and things of that nature." I try to share some of that with Lisa at home, and she just kind of rolls her eyes, you know, kind of like, you know, and she she humors me and she acts semi interested, but she really doesn't care what the medieval theologians said about such and such to me. I think that's kind of cool. Um, but but she'll sit there and worship for, you know, an hour or two at the piano. And you'll have people in your church, for example, that to them, the most spiritual thing they do is welcome first time visitors. And that's and they might like some of the deep things you like to teach, but they just love hospitality. They just love You know, and then you've got other people in your church that think the only reason the church exists is to reach the lost, you know, and they're always badgering you about, you know, why don't we do more outreach? Why don't we do more of this? And but see, the thing is, none of these things are supposed to be in competition with one another. They're supposed to be complementary. And it's when we somehow put all four of them together. And it's not that any church is going to be 25%, 25%, 25%. 20%. Churches are going to have things they focus on a little bit, do a little bit better than others. But if we're mindful of all four, then we can move toward this knowing what is the width and the length and the depth and the height. And knowing the love of Christ which passes knowledge that we might be filled with all the fullness of God, we, we our churches take on a richer, uh, more full expression. I want to do this real quickly. I want to ask each of you to identify in your own person where you are in terms of what is your greatest strength, which of these, because I think most people have, you know, now you may be sitting here today and say, Brother Cook, let me be honest with you. I am perfectly balanced in all four of these areas. I flow equally in all four. Well, if that's if you do, we want to really give you a standing ovation or something. But my suspicion is, is that most of you would say, if I was going to be really honest I appreciate all four, I respect all four, but the one I'm most comfortable with, the one I feel the strongest unction toward is this one. And it's okay, you can have a secondary or a third, but I want to know what do you feel is your primary? If you had to choose one that is your primary strength, which is it? All right? So let's start, let's start with width, the how. The, the hospitality, the connecting with people, uh, you know, making people feel welcome. How many of you think that your greatest strength is in the area of width, hospitality and connecting with people where they are? Let me see your hand with how many with people. We have one person who's with two personally, Chris, three, Matt, four, Bill, five. Was your hand up? Okay, okay. So we have five people in here who are width. Okay. Um, Remind me to mention something about that number in just a second. You'll take, make a note of it. Thank you. How many of you depth? How many of you just love the deep stuff? All right. Wow. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Now, our numbers are are skewed here from normal, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. How many of you... I skipped length. How many of you length, reaching the lost, evangelism, outreach, outside... You're you're more passionate about stuff going on outside the four walls than inside. One, two, and then we have a a, a wife here who just went like that. Yeah, so you, you know him well. And then Chris... You're cheating. You can't do two. All right. I thought I was one. But I get food a lot. I get quoted that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Exactly. So, so you're you're Exactly. So you've got strengths in both areas. We, we appreciate that. All right. Let me make this mention back, Chris, too, because there's a discipleship dimension in his life as well. Yeah. He's got people that live in his home with him that he mentors and he disciples. So, Chris, you may be moving toward the twenty-five, twenty five, twenty five. We're going to find out here. Oh, only seven. Now, but we have to. We have to do this. How many of you height? Height is the thing you just you just want to worship God. Worshiping God to you is the epitome of everything. One, two, three. Okay, very good. The only thing that's different between this and a normal this is the first time that we've ever had more deep than wide. Wide is always number 1. But if we had more regular church members here and not just pastors and top-level leaders, we've got that's why our numbers are You know, we will find if you if you brought in like all your regular church members, the majority of people here would have said the width is the number one, because they just want to make people feel welcome and hospitable. They're not your deep theologians or anything like that. They just they they just want to make people feel welcome. And that's really what we need the most of is because that means we connect with our community where our community is. Make people feel welcome. We just need a few people taking people deep, but we need a lot of people making people feel welcome because you can't take people deep until they first been they feel accepted and loved. I'll share with you something Lisa said to me after we started traveling. See, I'd taught at Rama for 18 years. So I was teaching nothing but Bible school students. And even at Rama Bible Church, you've got a lot of alumni and students there. So that pulls your teaching and your preaching to a little deeper level. And I did a lot. I directed RMAI for 13 years, so I was talking to pastors a lot. So when we started traveling and preaching in regular churches, Lisa said to me, she said, Tony, she said, what you're teaching in these churches is good. But she said, it's over most everybody's head. She said, you're not talking to Bible school students anymore. You're not talking to pastors. You're talking to regular church members. And I got to looking at my sermon notes. Now, here's what I did. I, I stopped and thought about the fact that Paul, in Roman First uh, Corinthians 14, he said, you've got three types of people in your church services. You've got mature believers... You've got what Paul called the unlearned or the ignorant. And that was Christians, but they just were pretty new. They didn't know much. And then you've got the unsaved. And so I looked through my notes that I'd been preaching, you know, different types of sermons. And I said, how much in my sermons is zeroing in on mature believers? How much is applicable and relevant and helpful to a baby Christian who doesn't know anything and how much of it would really connect with and be impacting to an unbeliever. And you know what I found out is that almost 100% of my material was for the mature believer. That's what I've been doing for 18 years. And so I had to ask myself the question, not compromising the Word of God, but I had to ask myself the question, how can I take my content? And Lisa said, your content's fine. It's just all geared toward the mature believer. And so I started having to ask, how can I take this same content and make it where it would help and connect with and not choke um, uh, an unlearned, ignorant, you know, brand new Christian and, and still have some connectivity to an unbeliever. And one of the things that I started doing was stories and illustrations. Do you know the reason Brother Hagan's ministry was so impacting? I mean, we can probably list dozens of reasons, the anointing and all that. But Brother Hagan told lots of stories. If you look at Brother Hagan's teaching and preaching ministry, he did three things. Number one, open your Bibles, and he'd read a verse. Number two, he would explain the principle. And number three, he would tell stories. People got hooked by his stories. And he would tell the story. He would tell all different stories illustrating the principle highlighting the verse. And that's why Brother Hagin had such massive appeal, not just because he taught the Bible, which he did well, but because he told stories. So how many of you remember, you know, hundreds of Brother Hagin's stories? Because the stories... So, like, for example, one of the books I wrote was on the topic of grace. And when I would teach grace in a church... You could open up with all kinds of verses, which I would obviously use several Bible verses. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You've got all these wonderful Bible verses, but you've got unbelievers in the audience. You've got baby Christians that don't know anything. So when I would teach on grace, well, I would use those scriptures in the message, I would always open with this story. How many of you remember Dennis the Menace? Everybody raises their hand. Everybody remembers Dennis the Menace. And I would say, well, in one of the cartoons, Dennis and his little buddy Joey were leaving the home of Mrs. Wilson. Now, Mrs. Wilson was the grandmotherly, next-door neighbor, the super-sweet lady. She wasn't grouchy like Mr. Wilson. She just loved those kids. And Dennis and Joey are seen leaving Mrs. Wilson's house carrying all these cookies that Mrs. Wilson had just baked for them. And Joey says to Dennis, Dennis, what did we do to deserve all these cookies? And Dennis says, Joey, Mrs. Wilson doesn't bake us cookies because we're nice. Mrs. Wilson bakes us cookies because she's nice. And everybody laughs, you know, because everybody remembers Dennis the Menace and cute little story. And then I would just say, if you understand that story, you basically understand what grace is. Because Mrs. Wilson didn't bake them cookies because of how good they were. Because, you know, mischievous little kids, you know. And, and God doesn't give us His blessings because of how perfect we are. Because we sure haven't all been perfect, have we? The Bible says we've all sinned. We've all come short of the glory of God. But just like Mrs. Wilson baked cookies for Dennis and Joey because of her nature and because of her goodness... God has given us forgiveness and mercy through Jesus Christ, not because we were good, but because God is good. And I just began going through messages not to make them more deep, but to make them more broad, to give them more um, so more people could understand. So these are just some things. I'll, I'll just share this in closing. Um, We don't need to be threatened by people who do it different or have a different emphasis. Um, There are some ministries that will have an emphasis. I mean, they're a worship ministry. They're a discipleship ministry. They're an evangelistic ministry. Nothing wrong with having some. But when it comes to the church, the local church, most churches are going to do better if they can ask how are we doing it being wide? What do we need to do? You know, maybe it's just having a few people in the parking lot, helping people in, making people feel welcome. You know, maybe it's, it's adjusting our messages a little bit to where we make sure that we're communicating so that people understand. Brother Hagen, again, I'll use him as an example. Brother Hagen said that in one of his churches, he had a young man, and I, boy, I don't know what the politically correct term is today, um, mentally challenged, okay? His IQ was not as high as everybody's. He was a slower learner. I don't know, again, I don't know what the politically correct term is today. A slower learner. And Brother Hagen said that when he preached, here's what he did. He would give a scripture, he would state the principle, and then he'd tell a couple stories to illustrate how that scripture worked. And Brother Hagin said as he was looking across, he would take time then. Chris, I'm going to use you, sorry, on this. illustration, You're not slow or anything like that. But but he would look at that person, that young man. And if that young man looked like, you know, then Brother Hagin, what he'd do is he'd back up. He might use another scripture, similar scripture, and tell another story or two. And then he'd look at that young man, and if that young man, if his eyes lit up like, I've got it, then Brother Hagen would know it's okay now to go on to another point. But if that young man didn't, if he didn't light up, Brother Hagen didn't leave that point. Because Brother Hagin didn't want to go so deep that he left people unable to comprehend. But he knew, if I can get that young man, if his eyes light up, then I know... Everybody in the church could, could have gotten it by now. And then Brother Higgin would go on to another point. So how wide, how, how long, how deep, how high is the love of God? That's what gets us filled with all the fullness of God. Amen.